Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We are from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is, high, is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years.
Well, uh, if you're uh, visiting with us this morning, am I on there? Okay, good. Am I? doesn't sound like I'm on. No. Am I on? Marty's not, Marty's not liking it there. Just, uh, is that right? Not getting any levels? Do you know I'm watching the cricket yesterday? Yeah? Two, it's living in another world. Yeah? Should we go with the other one? What? Is it? It's half on? Okay. Okay. I don't know if anyone watched the cricket yesterday, but um, it's like living in another world, isn't it? Uh, Watching the ads on commercial television? There we go. Uh, I only ever watch ABC. And I was absolutely horrified to watch the McDonald's ad with the backing track, Zadok the Priest. What's with that? One of the greatest, wo- one of the greatest works of classical music, you know, uh, written for the coronation of, who was it, King Henry IV? I think by Handel. And made the backing track for an ad about choosing your own hamburger. Talk about travesty. Anyway, I had to get that off my chest. Uh, well, in more, serious, uh, in more serious matters, I don't know if you're a Shakespeare fan. Uh, perhaps uh, soon they'll be using Shakespeare in McDonald's ads. But I don't know if you, if you like Shakespeare, but uh, one of my favourite plays is Shakespeare's Hamlet. I Hated it studying it in uh, high school and then, you know, came to love it uh, as years went on. But Shakespeare's Hamlet ends with this scene of absolute carnage. Uh, In Hamlet, Shakespeare is attempting to avenge his father's death and in the process he ends up killing almost everybody uh, or at least driving them to their deaths. Uh, He accidentally stabs the wrong guy behind the curtain. Uh, that leads to the love of his life, Ophelia, kind of being driven to madness and taking her own life. He sends his former friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, to their death in kind of this duplicitous plot where he sends a letter uh, with them to another land. Uh, his mother is accidentally poisoned by his arch nemesis. And Hamlet av- finally gets around to avenging his father's death by killing his uncle but not before he himself is stabbed with a poisoned sword. It's like Romeo and Juliet, you know, the whole time you're going, come on, if you do, oh. It's absolute carnage. It's a bloodbath. Hamlet ends up doing what he set out to do, that is to revenge his father, but his plan leads to his own death and to the death of almost everybody else as well. And as the play ends, Hamlet's friend Horatio is one of the few survivors and he stands on this stage set with bloodied bodies. And Horatio turns to the audience and he says, let me speak uh, and to the yet unknowing world how these things came about. So shall you hear of carnal, bloody and unnatural 
acts of accidental slaughters and uh, uh, judgments and casual slaughters of deaths put on by cunning and forced cause. And in this upshot, purposes mistook fallen on the inventors' heads. Hamlet's a play about a guy who tries to get something done and all his plans end up falling on his own head. And in this upshot, purposes mistook falling on the inventor's head. It could be a summary of life, couldn't it? (laughs) All the things that we do to other people come back and fall on us. The mischief we plan for other people's lives coming back on our own heads. It could be a summary of life. It's certainly a summary of these chapters, this chapter of Genesis that we're looking at today. In Genesis 29, all the conniving and the deceit that Jacob had practiced on others now falls on him. But just as God has been working through Jacob's deceit and cunning and dishonesty, so we see still here as well that God is at work in his misfortune as well. Well, we pick up uh, the story today after Jacob has been sent off by his father and mother to find a wife among the family of his uncle Laban. As Jacob travels, he uh, fortuitously happens upon the place where Laban's flock come to drink. He meets some shepherds and he asks them if they know Laban. And what do you know? They do know Laban. And what do you know? Just as he's asking them about Laban, Laban's daughter, Rachel, comes up over the hill. The overly convenient circumstances that Jacob finds himself in is a testimony that God is with Jacob just as he promised. You might remember that in the chapter last week, God had said to Jacob, I'll be with you, I'll do what I've promised, I'll bring you back, I'll look after you, I'll take care of you, and God is doing that. He's fulfilling his promise. But as Jacob meets these shepherds and as uh, he meets Rachel, uh, he discovers these shepherds all standing around, not doing much, not moving the stone on top of the well. Rachel's bringing her flocks to drink and the shepherds are just standing there, not doing anything. So he goes over, uh, he sees Rachel, he goes over, he removes the stone from the well, which would have been a Herculean effort to move the stone by himself. The shepherds are all standing there and he's, you know, I wouldn't have had a hope. <laughs> would, have, would, have, would have just been embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> but he, he goes over and he moves the stone. But he doesn't just move the stone. He goes over to Rachel, he kisses her and he bursts into tears. Clearly he's out to impress. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know much about dating, but uh, I'm. I'm <laughs> to me, that just seems a bit weird, frankly. But uh, that's what he does. He, he kisses Rachel and he bursts into tears. But why is he crying? Is he just so overcome by his beauty? I just, you're so beautiful. I just want to cry. It's just. <laughs> it's just really amazing. Is that what he's doing? I don't think that's what he's doing. Uh, for those who are romantically, of us who are romantically inclined, Jacob here is not crying for joy. The, the, the language here suggests uh, sobbing and wailing. 
right? This is, this is something else. This is not, you're so beautiful, I have to cry. It's something else. It's something deeper. I suspect the emotion that, that Jacob is feeling here is not joy, but relief. He's been forced to flee his family, remember, because his brother wants to kill him. His own brother wants to kill him. He's been on the road for about three weeks at least. No one's been with him. Uh, he's been searching for his uncle Laban, but he probably doesn't know where to go. He, he can't punch the address uh, into Google Maps. H- how is he going to find the place? He's gone to look for a wife. He doesn't know anything about uh, what the family of Laban is going to be like. He doesn't know who he's going to find when he gets there. And miraculously, on this journey, he, he, he stumbles across Laban, he stumbles across Laban's daughter, and he discovers that this daughter of, his, of Laban's is, is really beautiful. And the immense relief of that situation overcomes him. <sighs> I've made it. I've made it here. He meets Rachel, he greets her, he's so relieved he bursts into tears. Well, Jacob follows Rachel back to her family uh, and he meets Laban finally in person. It turns out also that there are two sisters, Leah and Rachel. Leah is the older sister, uh, but she has weak eyes, uh, possibly tender eyes actually. Uh, Rachel is the younger sister who's far more beautiful, far more attractive. Jacob wants to marry Rachel but he has nothing to offer. So he agrees with Laban to work for seven years in exchange for the opportunity to marry Rachel. He's so in love with Rachel, we're told, that those seven years seemed like only a few days. Well, that's, that's some love. Uh, I remember a friend of mine, uh, I remember a friend of mine, he was going off to meet a girl that he just, he's now married to, actually. Uh, and he was, he, just go, he was going off to meet her and uh, he, he mistakenly found himself cleaning his teeth in the kitchen rather than in the bathroom. <laughs> rather than the bathroom. He was so distracted by what was going on. Uh, and clearly that's what happened to Jacob as well. Uh, sort of, for seven years, that's a long time to be, to be lovestruck. Uh, for seven years, he, uh, he was uh, in another world working for, uh, for Rachel. But when the time finally comes to marry... Uh, things don't work out. Laban does a switch. He puts Rachel, uh, Leah in Rachel's place and Jacob consummates the marriage with Leah by mistake. He wakes up in the morning and he's got the wrong wife. He's furious, but he's also desperate. And in his desperation to marry the woman that he loves, he agrees to work for another seven years for Laban. There's a deep irony uh, in what's going on here. It's like the story of Jacob and Esau, but in reverse. Instead of two brothers, there's two sisters. Jacob loves the younger one rather than the older one, but he he ends up being tricked and getting the older one by mistake. Jacob's own schemes fall back on his own head. He's treated by Laban the same way that he treated his own brother Esau. Laban out Jacob's Jacob. 
This is the first part of God's training program to turn Jacob from the man that he was into a man who trusted God. Jacob is made to feel the effects that his sin has had on others by experiencing it himself. Remember, God said, I'm going to be with you. I won't forsake you. I'll do what I've promised. But bringing back, Jacob has strings attached, and that is training and and making Jacob a man who follows God. Well, what happens to Jacob is, I think, one of God's tied and trusted tied, attested and tried methods for training us in godliness as well. That is, the things that we do to others fall back on our own heads. So we cheat and lie to other people and we're so proud of ourselves until somebody else cheats and lies to us. And we're diddled (laughs) and we're outraged. Or we judge other people without having all the facts. We assume the worst of them and we think that we're justified. And then, of course, somebody does that to us. They assume the worst of us without knowing all the facts. And we're horrified. How could they misunderstand me so terribly? We get angry at someone and give them a serve for doing something which is utterly inconsequential. And then someone gets angry at us and gives us a serve for doing something that doesn't matter And we're shattered. God does it in our relationship with him as well. What's it like for God to be a father whose children never listen? Well, I think if you have children, you'll have a window into what that's like for God. What's it like for God to pour himself out in love for us and then for us to spurn him and to walk all over him? Well, if you've ever felt the pain of unrequited love, I think you'll know what that feels like. And I don't just mean unrequited romantic love, but any time you've loved someone in a costly and difficult way and that love hasn't been reciprocated, you'll know what it must feel like for God when we treat him the way that we do. It's not much fun to learn like that, But there's no better way, I think, for us to understand the seriousness of sin and the effects that it has on God and on others than for us to feel, there's no better way than for us to feel what it's like to have those things done to us that we do to others. Of course, God doesn't always make sure that we get back what we've given out. God lets more things go than he takes up. But when he takes things up, he does it not out of vindictiveness or spite, but for our good. He does it, as in the case of Jacob, either to turn us to him or to teach us and to train us to love him, to follow him, to seek him out. He does it to teach us and to train us in living for Jesus. Well, Jacob's schemes fall on his own head, but God is using that to teach and to train Jacob And it's clear that there's still quite a bit of teaching and training to do. If you read through Genesis from the start to the finish, you can't help but notice how different Jacob's search for a wife is from an earlier search for a wife uh, back in Genesis chapter 24. There in Genesis 24, 
Abraham is determined to find a wife for his son Isaac. Uh, Turn back with me to, to Genesis 24. We'll just have a quick look at that, or bits of it. So Abraham's Abraham wants to find a wife for his son Isaac, and he sends his servant out to, to, to fetch one. Now the servant's a bit worried that he might not be able to find a wife. So Abraham says to his servant in verse 7, The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. His servant sets off to find a wife. And as he draws near the town, the servant prays. He says in verse 12, uh, well, we're told in verse 12, Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master, Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master, Abraham. See, I'm standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says... Drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have chosen, that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. The servant had barely finished praying, and out comes Rebecca, and she does all the things she, uh, that the servant had prayed for. Through Abraham's search for a wife... Uh, for Isaac, God is constantly at the centre. Abraham is confident that God will provide just as he promised. And Abraham's servant is seeking God through prayer. But in contrast, Jacob goes in search of a wife. He never even mentions God once. He never seeks God. He never expresses his confidence God. He never says, thank you, God, that I made it here in one piece. He bursts out in tears. He's so relieved that he's made it. And he never says, well, thank you, God, for bringing me all this way. The silence is deafening. Instead of trusting in God, Jacob trusts his feelings and he trusts the serendipity or the chance or the coincidence of the events. It's a cautionary tale. It's startling, I think, how easy it is for us to presume to take responsibility for our own actions without any reference to God. Or how easy it is for us to simply take for granted that God will direct our steps. Marriage is, is a great example. It's the example here, isn't it? The Hollywood script perfectly mirrors Jacob's experience. Two people's paths cross serendipitously. They fall in love at first sight. We're led to believe that those are all the cues that we ought to look for. <laughs> what makes a valid re- relationship? But what about God? What does God think? Maybe it's not a good idea. Our hearts lead us into all kinds of bad choices. Why should we trust our hearts implicitly with such a significant life-changing decision like marriage? We always fall in love with the wrong things, don't we? (laughs) The Bible tells us that all the time. We fall in love with the wrong things. So what would make us think that we wouldn't fall in love with the wrong person? 
It happens all the time. Like when somebody falls in love with someone who isn't their spouse or somebody falls in love with someone who isn't married, uh, sorry, who is married. And what's true of marriage is true of all kinds of decisions. A much better question than how do I feel about this and how coincidental are all the circumstances? A much better question is what does God think? And the way that we discover the answer to that question is through prayer, like Abraham's servant, and through reading and reflecting on the Bible, as Abraham did when he sent his servant out. And it's also by asking other wise and godly people. Often other people can see the things that we can't see. That's especially true in marriage. Uh, one of my lecturers always used to say, you should raise your children so that it's, in, it's instinctive for them to ask the question, do you think I should marry this person? What do you think of this, what do you think of this person? Isn't that remarkable? It's so countercultural for us to ask anyone but ourselves. But it's true with other decisions too, isn't it? Someone asked me recently what I, what I thought that they should do. They said, what do you think I should do about a pretty big decision? It wasn't until they'd asked me that that I realised what a rare question that actually is. And in fact, I can't think of the last time somebody else has asked me that. That is, we often complain, but rarely ask for advice. And if people give us advice, we say, don't tell me what to do, <laughs> I just want you to listen. How remarkably wise then it was for that person to ask for advice. You see, wisdom is not knowing the answer. We think that wisdom is to know the answer, but wisdom in the Bible is not knowing the answer. It's often the wisdom that's required to ask the question and to listen to what people say. So says the proverb, where there is no guidance, the city falls. But in an abundance of counsellors, there is safety. <laughs> that is, a wise person asks lots of people, what do you think I should do? And they weigh up the evidence. And of course, the most important counsellor is not other people, but God. If it's important to ask other people what they think about what we should do, how much more important is it for us to ask God? to see what God thinks and what God wants. And when it comes to asking the advice of people, what we want is people who will give us thoughtful biblical advice, people who ground what they're saying in what the Bible says, people who ground what they're saying in the nature and the character of God, people who take you to the Bible and show you how God thinks. No, feelings and coincidence are not the best counsellors, our hearts are not the best counsellors. God is the best counsellor. And we ought to seek God's counsel in prayer and listen to what God says through his word and through the people that God has put around us. Well, God is teaching and training Jacob through his misfortune so that Jacob would be a man who seeks God and who trusts God's counsel. 
But at the end of chapter 29 and at the beginning of chapter 30, we begin to see more clearly the misery that Jacob's carelessness and Laban's deceit causes, the the human tragedy uh, that's caused by their hastiness and their sin. Let's uh, turn back to Genesis 29 to verse 31. I just want to read on a little bit more about, uh, about what happens. So Genesis 29 from verse 31, where it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord... Uh, heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and that through her I too can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhar as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhar conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The woman will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the field and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honour because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then Jacob remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph. 
and said, may the Lord add to me another son. The trickery of Laban and Jacob's failure to consult God has devastating human consequences. There ends up being this massive arms race between Leah and Rachel fought with babies. Leah feels desperately unloved and she hopes that by having children, Jacob will love her. But it doesn't work. Rachel sets her hopes on having children but she isn't able to at first, and that long battle makes her bitter and jealous. And yet, despite the misery and the conflict, remarkably, God shows kindness to both of these women. We're told in, verse 20, uh, in chapter 9, verse 31, 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. And finally, in chapter 30, verse 22, we're told, Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. Rachel gives birth to Joseph and eventually also to Benjamin, the two children who will become the favourites of Jacob. But surprisingly, it's Leah who gives birth to Judah. Judah is the one through whom the Messiah would come. He'd be the, he's the one who is the ancestor of the kings of Israel. And eventually he's, the, Messiah, he's the, the ancestor of Jesus. That Leah is the one who gives birth to Judah suggests something quite unexpected, I think. It suggests that she is actually the one that God intended Jacob to marry in the first place. So far in Jacob's story, trickery and deceit, far from obstructing God's purpose, has actually carried it out. And now we find the unloved, the mistakenly married wife being the one who bears the great ancestor of God's Messiah, Jesus. That might seem like a long bow, but there's something else as well, I think, that suggests that that's true. Turn uh, to the end of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 49 where Jacob is about to die and he gives these final instructions. So Genesis 49, uh, verse 29. He says to his sons, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in uh, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. Do you remember uh, that Abraham had bought that cave in the promised land as a witness to God's promise uh, to bless the world through him, as a witness to God's promise to put the world right? All the patriarchs were buried in that same cave, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah. And Jacob and his wife are buried there too, but not Jacob uh, and Rachel, but Jacob and Leah. Rachel had died on the way to Bethlehem. She was buried there. But Leah is the one who's buried with Jacob 
in the tomb of his fathers. When it finally comes time to die, it was Leah who was buried with Jacob and not Rachel. It's striking, isn't it, that having been dealt the wrong wife, Jacob never once stopped to ask whether perhaps God might have had a hand in it. He just powered on, determined to do what he had determined to do. How prone we are to do that, I think, as well. To set our minds on a course of action and obstacles get in our way and we fail to stop and ask whether God might actually have different plans to our own. The opposite danger, I think, is to think that just because something doesn't work, God must be against it. Now, the important thing is not to power through at all costs, nor is the thing to do to give up at the first hurdle. The thing to do is to constantly be receptive and mindful of God's leading and guiding. The most important thing is to stop and ask the question, what is God doing? It may be that you stop and ask, should we keep going with this? And the answer is, yes, you should keep going. But the answer may also be no. No, give up. The important thing is to do the thing which Jacob never did, and that is to seek God. Well, burying Leah with him in the tomb of his forefathers in the promised land suggests that Jacob finally got it. At the end of his life, he'd finally worked out that maybe Leah was part of God's plan. He finally got it. The unloved Leah was the wife that God wanted him to have. Jacob's woes are his comeuppance for his own deceit. He marries the wrong wife. His family descends into chaos. But through it all, God is with Jacob as he promised to be and God is teaching and training Jacob to be a man who seeks him and trusts him. We too might suffer the consequences of our actions, but that doesn't mean that God has turned against us. If you are in Christ and belong to him, then God is using all those things to teach you and to train you as well. To teach and to train you so that you would seek him and so that you would trust him in everything. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you are not a God who leaves us uh, on our own but you promise to go with us. Uh, and Lord, you promise uh, not merely to save us, but to bring us to maturity in Christ Jesus. Indeed, to present us holy and blameless in him at the last day. Uh, and thank you, Lord, that you are already working out your great purposes in Christ in our lives already now. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit, your great plan of salvation uh, has called us to you 
but also that through the circumstances and events of our lives, you are teaching and training us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to learn the lessons that you send us. Uh, Help us to see what you're doing, to be responsive, to listen, to be humble enough to repent, to be trusting enough to turn to you in faith, to be confident enough to seek you in all the decisions that we make. And to be attentive enough to listen to the guidance and advice that you give to us through your word and through the godly people trained by your word that you have put in our lives. Father, help us not to just power on with our own plans and schemes, but to be people who are constantly guided by you and trained by your work. Father, we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.